Hello everyone, how are you? My respiration is all slowed down. Now it's so funny, I'm in Vermont, it's like, hello. I'm gonna take a short nap. Um, no, this is great, because it's like I walked out of a, a, a skillet and into a flower bed or something. So you guys are so lucky to be here. Uh, thank you very much for that nice introduction. Um, thank you for the, the invitation. And um, I am going, I do teach writing, uh, but I teach, the school where I teach, there are a lot of first generation college. And uh, so I have a heart, I have to trick them into writing somehow. So uh, I was going to my poetry class, it was the day of their final. And, you know, I come in and their shoulders are all slumped and they're like, you know, what am I doing? So I said, hey, good news, no final. And they were like, yay, they carried me around the room on their shoulders, you know. And, um, and then I said, but I have something else for you. I said, what was your most uh, difficult age? Right? What was your most difficult age? Anyone? 13? 14? 37? Yesterday? <laughs> so uh, the consensus in the class was 13. And if you think about 13, 13 is universally miserable. Okay? If you have skin, there's something wrong with it. Right? And then there's this whole nether region thing. You don't know what's going on. It's, this is bumping into walls and you're over someplace else. Um, so, I, you know, I said, okay, here's your new final. I said, I want you to write a poem about being 13. I want it to be 13 stanzas, 13 lines each stanza, 13 syllables each line. Whoa. Don't you wish you were in my class? But I don't, I don't give my students anything to do unless I do it too. So my 13 was way different from their 13, but there are some things that are just terrible all the way around, no matter how old you are. So I'm going to read a few of my 13 ways of looking at 13. And uh, I can always tell who's my age when I do this, because I hear somebody like groan like really low and go, oh, man. Uh, so I'm going to pick uh, probably about five of these. One, you touch your forefinger to the fat clots in the blood, then lift its iron stench to look close, searching the globs of black scarlet for the dimming swirl of dead children. You thread one thick pad's cottony tail, then the other through the little steel guides of the belt. See, see? Yeah, okay. You stand and lift the contraption, press your thighs close to adjust the bulk, then bend to pull up coarse white cotton panties bleached blue, and just to be safe, you pin the bottom of the pad to the shredding crotch of the carters. Then you spritz the guilty air with the cloying kiss of FDS. <laughs> this whole side is like, ah! Okay. It's time to begin the game of justifying ache. Time to name the mystery prickling that's riding your skin. You're convinced the boys can smell you, and they can. The three. Miss Stein scribbled a word on the blackboard, said, Who can pronounce this? And the word was anemone. 
And from that moment you first felt the clutter of possible in your mouth. From the time you stumbled through the rhythm and she slow smiled, you suddenly knew you had the right to be explosive, to sling syllables through back doors, to make up your own damn words when you needed them. All that day's sweet anemone tangled in your teeth, spurted sugar tongue, led you to the dictionary where you were assured that it existed, to the cave of the bathroom where you warbled it in bounce echo, and finally, convinced that you own that teeny gospel, you wrote it again and again and again and a four. Trying hard to turn hips to slivers, sway to stutter. You walk past the Sinclair station where lanky boys, dust in their hair, dressed in their uniforms of oil and thud, rename you pussy with their eyes. They bring sound shudder and blue from their throats just for you. Serve up ancient sonata of skin drum and conch shell. Sing suggesting woos of AM radio. Boom, boom! How you just gonna walk on by like that? And suddenly you know why you are stitched so tight, crammed like a flash bomb into pinafore, obeying your mama's instructions to be a baby as long as you can. Because it's a man's world, and James Brown is gasoline. The other side of slow zippers. He is all of it. The pump, pump. The growled, please, please, please. Are there napkins anywhere? Or anything? I am going to so sweat up here. It's going to be a real spectacle. I can feel it. It's a big fan up there mocking me, going, I would move if I could. Okay, we're getting there. Oh, yeah, yeah! Now we're talking. Yeah. Don't say VSC is not playing around. Ah. Okay, one swipe. In the bathroom of the whatnot joint on the way to school, you get rid of the starch and billowed lace, Borette's taming unraveling braids, white knee socks, and sensible hues. From a plastic bag, you take out electric blue eyeshadow, platforms with silver glittered heels, neon fishnets, and a blouse that doesn't so much button as suggest shut. The transformation takes five minutes and you emerge feeling like a budding lady but looking in retrospect like a blind streetwalker bursting from a cocoon. This is what television does, turns your mother into clueless backdrop, fills your pressed head with the probability of thrum. Your body becomes just not yours anymore. It's a dumb little marquee. Okay, uh, okay, here's the painful one. For me, anyway. Nine. With your bedroom door closed, you are a skyscraper bouffant, peach foundation, eyelashes like upturned claws. You are exuding ice. You are pinched all over by earrings. You are way too much woman for this room. The audience has one chest, a single shared chance to gasp. They shudder, heave, waiting for you to open your mouth and break their hearts. 
Taking the stage, you become an S, pour ache into hip swings, tsk tsk as the front row collapses, damn they want you. You lift the microphone, something illegal comes out of you, a sound like titties and oil. And a strange line, I don't even know where that came from. Mama flings the door open with a church version of your name. Then you are pimpled, sexless, ashed, and double dutch knees. You are spindles. You are singing into a hairbrush. Yeah, right, right. So what I used to do is take my father's shirts, his white shirts, and put them on my head so that the sleeves would hang down the side, and I would just go around the house the whole time. And then when I did a show, which I did in my room to myself singing in the hairbrush, I put the sleeves up on top of my head and have them come over cascade style, which is how all the people on the Carol Burnett show did it. Okay. 13. You're almost 14. And you think you're ready to push beyond the brutal wisdoms of the one and the three, but some nagging crave in you doesn't want to let go. You suspect that you will never be this unfinished, all Hail Mary and precipice, stuttering sachet, fuses in your swollen chest suddenly lit and spitting, and you'll need to give your hips a name for what they did while you weren't there. You'll miss the the pervasive fever that signals blooming, the sore lessons of jump rope in your calves. This is the last year your father is allowed to touch you. Sighing, you push Barbie's perfect body through the thick dust of a top shelf. There, her prideful heart thunders. She has heartened you well. She has taught you everything. church. Okay, I'm just going to do this real quick. I grew up in the Baptist church because Because we sipped blood siphoned from grocery store grapes. Because matrons squinted at the dim, crackling pages of hymnals. Because we obediently warbled exactly what we found there. Because spurting prompt hallelujahs was serious business. Because my mother's gilded teeth flashed when she begged. Because on Sundays, we presented God with several options. Because Reverend Thomas's thick ankles were stiff and blue with fluid. Because his spat truths were mangled by bad tooth and spittle because he made 72 years move like some golden engine because Tony the choir director was how you say it a sissy because that old organ wailed like the b-side of a backslap because the pocked wooden floor left language on our knees because the rafters grew slimy with wailing because well because Judas a pimp in black light was smirking at Jesus again because somebody definitely acted up and conjured Mississippi because salt pork flailed in a skillet in the basement kitchen because Lord knows we were all going to be crazy hungry because the Holy Ghost was dawdling in the men's room because he had scanned the crowd and wasn't crazy about his odds because the grandbabies of freed slaves shimmied in their seats because every upright elder in the front row blathered with fever because crosses unblessed with bodies were everywhere because every one of those wooden tees bellowed something out loud 
because just like last time, the fun word of the day was sacrifice. Because that sissy popped like a tear dripped on a red stovetop. Because he flowed our whole upturned voice from his fingers. Because worshippers with straightened hair wept slivers of delta. Because we were a tangled mess of sanctified thighs and tongues. Because several instigators whispered, just felt the ghost come in. Because Annie Pearl Smith's dazzled eyes got all the way wide. Because her numbed and hard-girdled waistline twisted in bliss. Because thick bodies hit the floor hard, squalling, convulsing. Because prim ushers dug white-gloved fingers into her forearms. Because I had to gaze into the peppermint of my mother's wail. Because I questioned what soft, holy monster writhed inside her. Because I had once again been spared the slick, slight hand of the devious divinity. Because that twirling sissy and I loved wrong and were loved wrong. Because when Tony sniffed haughty at the thrashing, collapsing congregation and whipped the choir in the direction of flame, I felt the organ's bright asking drip like fuel into the blood feeding my little hip. So I struck the match. Thank Thank you very much. Something about being in a church. (laughs) Okay. Hmm. All right. First friction. I was 12, too young to be left alone mornings after Mama packed her paper hat and sugar-dusted shoes to push gumballs down the assembly line. So I was unceremoniously dumped at the door of old Mrs. Gore's moss-idled basement hovel where the matron of snapping gum and gray grin ushered me in and plopped me down in a cheer that stank of a dog they didn't own. Seeing how I was bleary and unslept, Mrs. Gore would open the door to the bedroom where her twin girls, Kathy and Karen, still dreamed on the edge of alarm. Peppery, flailing, their waking bodies unwound to carve me room. I don't know how it started, how wordlessly Karen and I tussled skin, adjust knee and cunt, naturally knew the repeating mouth and its looping stanza. She smelled like what I couldn't stop swallowing. Content to thrive on a flickering cinema of ourselves, our eyes fluttered and never fully opened. We pretended a blazing slumber, hushing the grind, the soft rustle of sparse, sweating pubic, even after her unsuspecting sister stretched and tumbled out to begin her day. Strange, she didn't suspect our engine. For as long as we could, Karen and I stayed prone in exquisite pressurized tangle beneath the knotty orange chenille. We kept up the being blind, crashing into dampening borders until her fat mother shuffled in to rouse us, throwing shades open to the damnable day, introducing the stupid, useless notion of language again. By then, there was a drum buried in our bellies. We stank like men all up under that sweet funk that first sin leaves behind. Not yet for that. I'm going to do a couple more from this book. All right. (laughs) But not that one, this one. This book is called Should Have Been Jimmy Savannah. And um, my mother... I was an adult, and my mother said, you'd never guess what your father wanted to name you. 
And I said, what? And she said, your father wanted to name you Jimmy Savannah. And I was like, and you instead went for the incredibly dull and functional Patricia Ann. <laughs> it's like Jimmy Savannah would have been like the coolest poetry name ever, <laughs> ever. So a, a lot of this is, is like I grew up, you know, my parents both came up from the South during the Great Migration, my father from Arkansas, my mother from Alabama. And uh, being first generation North was interesting because while my parents were trying to figure out how to negotiate the North with jobs that were promised that weren't there and the fact that everybody who came up was sort of funneled into one part of Chicago, which later became one of the, the country's largest ghettos. Um, my, my parents were kind of, they left me in front of the television to dream. And everything I saw on television was what I thought that I was um, striving for. So uh, this is about my name. And you'll hear the name Otis in here, and that's my father. My mother scraped the name Patricia Ann from the ruins of her discarded delta, thinking it would offer me shield and shelter that leering men would skulk away at the slap of it. Her hands on the hips of Alabama, she went for flat and functional, then siphoned each syllable of drama, repeatedly crushing it with her broad, practical tongue until it sounded like an instruction to God and not a name. She wanted a child of pressed head and knocking knees, a trip up in the double dutch swing, a starched, pin of, eh, a starched pinafore and peppermint in the sour pickle kind of child. Anybody have peppermint in their sour pickles? Is it just me? So, okay, a little aside. When I was growing up, you would, there'd be these little uh, whatnot stores on the way to school, and you can go into the store, you could buy a 45. That's a small record for the younger among you. Uh, and a record, we'll get into that later. Okay, so you could buy 45, you could buy like long johns, those uh, long iced pastries. You could buy wax lips with juice in them, remember those? Uh, you could buy the... Um, the licorice, the long licorice strings. You could buy those, uh, the paper with the dots on them. Okay, you know, we probably have a big, big ball of paper in our guts just from the, right, so you, you could do that. Uh, but if you were from the Midwest, there would be a vat, there would be a big barrel of pickles. And you say, I want a pickle. So the woman would pull up her sleeve. She would plunge her arm down into the brine. She'd pull one up, show it to you. You go, no, not that one. She'd, she'd do it again, right? This is on the way to school in the morning, mind you. And she would put whatever pickle you wanted in a single ply paper bag. Okay, so already you're in trouble because it's already, right? And what you would do is you'd bite the top off the pickle. Then you would get a peppermint stick, not, not one like a Christmassy one, but a, a thick peppermint stick straight up and down. You would plunge the peppermint stick into the center of the pickle, and you would eat the pickle and peppermint together. Don't even until you try it, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying, your life will be changed. Your life will be changed. Uh, and then we would go, and we had the desk, we had the desk that opened up. So we would have this, this, this pickle in this single ply bag, which of course was, was shredded by then. And we put it under, as if nobody could smell like a big ass sour pickle. And we, <laughs> we put it under our desk. And we just kind of, every once in a while, the teacher wasn't looking, we would crunch the pickle and the peppermint stick. So much so that if you go to Walgreens, the drugstore in Chicago, downtown now, they will have an aisle with uh, pickles in plastic bags and peppermint sticks right next to them. Don't play. Okay. Where was I? 
Okay, no, 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 okay. She wanted a child's oppressed head and knocking knees, a trip up in the double dutch swing, a starched pinafore and peppermint and sour pickle kind of child, stiff laced and unshakably fixed on salvation. Her Patricia Ann would never idly throw the Lord's name or wear one of those thin sparkled skirts that flirted with her knees. She'd be a nurse or third grade teacher or postal drone, jobs requiring alarm clock discipline and sensible shoes. My four downbeats were music enough for a vapid life of butcher's shop sawdust and fat back as cuisine for raids spritzed into the writhing pockets of a Murphy bed. No crinkled consonants or muted hiss would summon me. My daddy detested borders. One look at my mother's watery belly and he insisted as much as he could insist with her on the name Jimmy Savannah seeking to bless me with the blues bathed moniker of a ball breaker the name of a grown gal in a snug red dress and unlaced all-stars. He wanted to shoot muscle through whatever I was called, arm each syllable with tiny weapons so no one would mistake me for anything other than a tricky whisperer with a switchblade in my shoe. I was bound to be all legs, a bladed debutante hooked on lucky strikes and sugar. When I sent up prayers, God's boy would giggle and consider. Daddy didn't want me to be anybody's surefire factory, nobody's callback or seized rhythm, so he conjured a name so odd and hot even a boy could claim it. And yes, he was prepared for the look my mother gave him when he first mouthed his choice, the look that said, that's it. You done lost your goddamn mind. She did that thing she does where she grows two full inches with righteous. And he decided to just whisper, love you, Jimmy Savannah, whenever we were alone, re and rechristening me the seed of Otis, conjuring his own religion and naming it me. Okay, that's it for this book for a while. Oh. Thank you. All right, let's see. All right. Um, this book is called Incendiary Art. And um, if I had to do a log line, which I'm always telling my students about, it is the way that fire has shifted and disrupted the lives of African Americans in the United States. And uh, one of the poems was during the presidential campaign after um, an African American protester had been forcibly removed from a rally uh, held by one of our presidential candidates. Uh, they Inter, uh, interviewed a number of people and one of them said uh, I sure would like to burn a black man alive just to see what it feels like so um, this and there's a poem a little later on that comes directly from that but this one is uh, was written uh, during the unrest following um, you know in the unrest in Ferguson and uh, someone was saying I don't know why they're always burning their own neighborhoods down. So that's where this came from. Incendiary art. The city streets are densely shelled with rows of salt and packaged hair. Intent on air, the funk of crave and function comes to blows with any smell that isn't oil. 
The blare of storefront chicken settles on the skin and mango spritzing drips from razored hair. The corner chef's cue pork decide again on cayenne, fry in grease that's glopped with dust. The sizzle of the feast adds to the din of children strutting slant, their wanderlust and cussing, plus the loud and tactless hiss of dogged hustlers bellowing past gusts of peppered breeze. That fatty, fragrant bliss in skillets. All our rampant hunger tricks us into thinking we can dare dismiss the thing men do to boulevards, the wicks their bodies be. A city strapped for art delights in torching them, at first for kicks, to waltz to whirling sparks, but soon those hearts thud thinner, whittled by the chomp of heat. Outlined in chalk, men blacken and curl apart. Their blindly rising fume is bittersweet, although reversals in the air could fool us into thinking they weren't meant as meat. Our sons don't burn their cities as a rule, born as they are up to their necks in fuel. Okay. Incendiary Art, Ferguson, 2014. They should have left him there to be the center of his own altar, shat upon, he would have flowered, his empty hands tucked ass upended like a newborn. The lengthy streak of browning blood could be a sanctified walkway for the church ladies, for the pokers with their sticks, for the lawbreakers and abiders, for that new kind of worship. They should have taken advantage of those 14,400 seconds and thought it over for 14,000 more. How sobering it would be. Breathless icon as traffic circle. Every day, Chevys and livery cabs inching around the stain of him. Shriekers on the school bus tasting his blossoming funk in their clothes, having long ago given up counting flies. They should have left his body steaming on the asphalt while passenger side doors wrenched from 80s sedans, flaming barrels of garbage, charred chars of drugstore, and bare-chested boys, beautiful and bullseyed, blurred past in tribute. Black lives matter most when they are in motion. The hurdle and reverb matter. The rushed melody of fist. The shudderings of a scorched throat matter. The engine that moves us toward each damnable dawn matters. They should have left him there as proof. Eventually, the embers would have died in his hair. I'm sorry, I don't, I'm, I'm really bad at this. I don't pick my poems in advance, I kind of get in the room and see what the room feels like and decide what I feel like reading. Incendiary Art, Birmingham, 1963, for Avery R. Young. Baby girls, boom. Baby girls blow and burn, skin balloons, booms. Baby girls burn, boom. The Lord dangles, festive and helpless. Hymnals blacken while brown baby girls pucker, leak. Blood gels, muddles pigtail, makes lace stiff. 
Baby girls blacken, crackle in the vague direction of his hands nailed still. Baby brown girl bodies gap wide, wider, char, and shut. So there's a long sequence in this book. Oh, all right. In February 2010, 21-year-old student Samshi Abdur Rahim abducted his three-month-old daughter Zara. He placed her in a knapsack, drove to a bridge on the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey, and threw her out of the passenger side window of his car. She drowned in the Raritan River more than 100 feet below. In November 2011, also in New Jersey, Arthur Morgan III picked up his two-year-old daughter, Tierra for a trip to the movies. Later, Tierra was found face down in a frigid stream beneath a park overpass, strapped into a car seat which had been weighed down with a carjack. It was unclear whether she was thrown from the overpass or carried into the park and placed in the water. The five stages of drowning. Surprise. There is no drunk like the drunk of milk sleep. A drizzled white floods the body and weighs down everywhere we thought we knew about awake. Zara's new clockwork staggers with it, while daddy, grizzled and wild-eyed, lobs her like trash over the rusting rail. Inside the sack, the wriggling child cannot translate fly, plummet, descend. She doesn't realize the hard questions she poses for the pigeons or how, so dull and stupid with dairy, she is all the fall the sky can language. Babies accept what they are given. They never question the morning's flood of sun, a kitchen's blaring stink, or the wide hovering faces of fathers. After a swollen breeze pries her eyes open in the few seconds it takes for the fevered discarding of a daughter, baby doesn't ask the son, needling into the sack, to offer rule or direction. Zara Malani Lin Abdur Rahim, little not bird, has been jettisoned, ditched, unloaded. Her snared arms can find no rhyme for wing. The river's glittering trash smacks her blunt, but not before her tiny O fails its role as mouth, not before language breaks its promise to wait for her. If Zara can conjure no word for word, can find no way to bellow up daddy as she tumbles, stuffed inside a down, 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 reeking so oddly of him, how would she voice panic born of the day's quick fist? Slapped awake, she breathes in the close cloth and feels the little ruckus of a new heart. The startled river opens, then closes over her the way a new mother would. Involuntary breath holding. Imagine filling your body with everything you are and then holding it there. Imagine the smallness of that body you are nothing but the easy of blue, red, and green, food you have smashed with your fingers, and the stumbling possibilities of walk. 
Imagine not knowing that the ability to contain all of you in tiny ballooned cheeks decides whether you continue. Imagine not knowing the word continue. Quick wisp of fish nip warily at those fat cheeks, fall into irreparable love, and decide to make a new religion of you. Hallelujah, you are now a religion, a church of slither and slide, while daddy roars his glee into noontime traffic, not thinking about you, but thinking about your mother, and screeching, oh, she got another man now, huh? Well, fuck that hoe, I got something for her ass, I bet this gonna fix her bitch ass now, and you, Tierra, are the fix for her ass now. You are the fix for your mother's ass now. You are the pawn in a payback that cannot be unplayed. And your daddy, now miles away from your slow plunging, does a lousy parking job and stumbles into a smoky red-walled gin mill populated by other men without daughters. Hoisting a fat gold shot, he toasts his one accomplishment, the uncomplicated removal of a complication. While your daddy, I mean, while your cheeks deflate and the door to your next minute closes. You were alive when the stream first lapped its way round you, and the sound comes so sweet to the mouth of a baby who wants it. You laughed, Daddy! Until the giddy fish re-examined their worship of you, you coughed, <coughs> Daddy! Until <coughs> da Daddy was nothing but sound. Then you spat into the mud until you couldn't. The fickle fish, back in love, kissed the place where your breath had been. Hypoxic convulsions. Daddy is the architect of a baby girl's roll and rock. He teaches her to manage slink. Schools her in a woman's wet engine. If Zara lives, which she most definitely will not, somebody else's daddy will teach her all the wrong way there is not to get lured into a sack. How to lay quietly in the wrong skirt while her muscles argue. How one well-timed convulsion usually clears the dance floor. Like good drowning, good dancing hits the backside like an annoyance that must be why two seat loose. But how to respond to a sudden wet that's out to rearrange? Of course, drums are injected and Tierra, all thrash and snapdragon, shimmies for her giggle back. Baby is the battery black women build their bodies around until they're old enough to be officially romanced by yet another revision of Jesus. But right now, they're too little to feel the full hand of the Jesus voice, the caress of proverb, and, of proverb and psalm. They're flirting with that big daddy for all their little worth. Look at that itty bitty jerk and boogaloo, that pop swirling of hips they can't find, that runaway rim shot in unfinished chest. They're rearing back, opening wide, rearing back, opening wide, rearing back. Both throats are opening and slamming shut with river. Cue the skanky music. Brackish water snags the rhythm, controls their arms and ankles, gleefully involves the neck. It says, baby, save the last dance for me. Unconsciousness. The river, though. Sluggish and cagey and habitually a bitch, she has not decided to accept Zara, this vexation in her mouth. She is dazzled by choke, flopped blossoms, and the occasional seduced diver, but repulsed by all frailties of skin. 
The river is seldom in a mood to have her swerve scrutinized or interrupted. Now what is this damnable hindrance keeling over in my current? Prying the sack wide with gush, she prods the puckered contents, is not entertained. Intending to add the ugly pudge to her baubles, she finds that she cannot rouse it, is so not entertained. The little blue knot fish thing is flaccid, so unfun, snazzed up in its sopping petal pink, the eyes slit and rolling, nappy crown trapping living things that desperately need to breathe. The hide skids and burps. The river's most devoted feeders, so jazzed at first, have already had a go at it. And the thing won't give the river its props, won't beg for refuge in the water's arms. It won't say anything. The river flicks a bored blue finger at it, then flicks it away. She is so over this drama. The end of anything is only a kick to watch once. Clinical death. The final stage in the drowning process is death. Clinical death occurs when both breathing and circulation stop. The victim is in cardiac arrest. The heart stops pumping blood. The vital organs are no longer receiving oxygen-rich blood. The lack of oxygen causes the skin to turn blue. There are 52 shades of blue, or a million in 52, depending upon which river you ask. Three, cornflower. 17, cerulean. 21, blunt force. 28, turquoise. 34, navy. 37, Fix for her bitch ass now. 41, sky. 47, goodbye. But the way the river says it, bye, all dismissal and shade. 52, goodbye. But the way a daddy says it, over his shoulder, thrilling the done of the deed, already mad at the traffic. All right, I'll do the, the funny poem. <laughs> so I went through, uh, I got introduced to poetry by getting up on stage and doing it. And um, I'm always telling my students who, like I said before, I have a hard time getting them to write, is just listen to voices that are around you. You know, they love writing persona poems. I said, you know, it doesn't have to be a big thing. I've got a poem that's, um, uh, that I wrote years and years ago in the voice of a skinhead, which will not go away. It just, every time I go somewhere, it's like, do the skinhead. I said, no, 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 no. I don't feel like cursing at you people the way I would do it. So um, I have them do persona poems in the voices of people that are around them all the time. I said, you know the rhythm of your mother's voice. You know, you know the rhythm of the guy who works in the corner store and blah, blah, blah. You know, or the, the cop who, well, when I was growing up, there was a cop that walked the beat in a neighborhood. Um, and, and so when I started thinking about the, the voices I loved the most, there was one guy who uh, couldn't come out from behind the, the, uh, 
counter in a corner store, and I would go in there and read all the comic books just out of his reach. And he would have this running commentary yelling at me about what he was going to do if I opened that comic. And I would just sit there, because I knew he couldn't come out from behind the counter. And he would just keep going and going. But the other one was, when I was little, my father used to take me to the barber shop with him all the time. Uh, that was my place. And... Um, you know, they'd whirl me around on the chair and teach me how to play checkers. It was just a wonderful, wonderful place. That's why, like, older black men are still my favorite segment of the population, always. Um, and um, so I, the, the barber would have this running commentary. There was a big picture window, and he would talk about everybody who passed the window. I, sometimes he'd forget you were sitting there, he'd start talking about you, right? And he said, oh, wait till you leave. And so then when my son was small, I took him to the barbershop, even though it was a different city and years had passed, it was like the same barbershop. If you have ever been, if you have ever been in a black barbershop <laughs> on Saturday morning, no, and I think all barbershops may be like this to some degree. The barber just keeps talking. He won't shut up, right? So the barber I know, his name was Terrell, and he had this running commentary about, and was really talking about how much sex he was going to get. Although you know he hadn't had any since the Eisenhower administration. I mean, he was just like, blah, blah, blah. everybody who passed by was a possible, and oh, you know, somebody would leave and say, oh, I had her, or oh, I'm going to have her, or, you know, and it was like, no. So that was the voice in my head, and that's... That's the voice I'm about to present to you. <laughs> and I have a, a, something interesting to say about this, probably during the, the um, question and answer period. But Okay. Well, look who comes walking into my barbershop, still wearing that jerry curl. You know, man, it's 2000, and ain't nobody got no time for that grease trickling all down their neck, especially hot as it is out there. Let me clip that stuff down. Let those naps grow out. You know, a couple of weeks, I will hook you up with a fade. The sisters don't like putting their hands in that greasy mess. And did y'all see that child Aretha on stage at the president's thing, trailing all that fur like she's Queen Elizabeth and all that fat underneath it? I ain't never seen no black woman with money stay fat. Chickens see her coming, even the bones get scared. That child will eat a spaghetti strap. <laughs> What's that song she sang, Ain't No Way? Well, I guess it sure ain't. She got one chance, though. If you stay alive long enough, time will make you skinny. I just don't know if she got that much time. Oh, yeah. There go that gal I was telling y'all about. Got enough ass to balance a drink on. I'm going to be knee-deep in that come Friday night or my name ain't Terrell Anderson Jr. and I ain't got my hand tussling in y'all nappy heads. Man, she don't know me yet, but she will. I bet she already heard about how my love making then put a few sisters on crutches. I usually do this. <laughs> How I'm whipping some of this nature on them, now they drooling, barking like dogs. Hell, y'all can laugh if y'all want. Thomas, you ask your sister. And you over there, ask your mama. They say size don't matter, but it do if it's this size, man. I have to bind this to my leg, it will scare y'all out of here. Come next week, y'all can ask that gal y'all just seen. She be passing by that window in the wheelchair, mark my words. And Thomas, one too many times I hadn't seen your wife over across the street in the butcher shop. And the meat she asking for ain't what makes it to your table for supper. 
She's over there all behind the counter like she's interested in the butcher's business. What she's interested in is the butcher's business. And you better start taking care of business at your own home, my man, before she get a taste of that sausage she's selling. Then you'll be able to talk about, she gone, she gone. I'm telling you, women are liberated nowadays. You can't be climbing up on top of them, poking them like you got somewhere else to be in five minutes. And every time you get a chance, there you are up in the Continental, sniffing all up Deborah Ann's young butt like she wants something for you besides that money you always waving around. Man, I'm telling you, anytime you see flies buzzing around a woman, and it ain't summer, it's time to move on to another woman. I don't know, your wife got some nice legs on it, old man. If that butcher don't take up on it, I might get in line. And what, wait, 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 what you say? What, what? What's wrong with your boy? Damn near 40 years old, no woman in sight. Could be, just ugly though. You know, the other night, I heard a blind woman turning him down. Said she could just imagine how ugly he was. Now, what are you over here talking about some activator? Man, you better activate your head under this razor and let me cut that stuff out of there. Let me see if I can get this across to you. This is 2000. Black man is free now. Superfly done flew. I've been doing this 40 years. This is Terrell's Afrocentric Barbershop Fade Palace and Wild Style Emporium. Now put your ass in my chair and put your head in my hands.